I'd like to begin tonight's talk with a little survey, a show of hands. Um, how many people here grew up in a Western Christian Judeo religion of some kind? How many did not? Of those who did, how many of you feel that you were somewhat imprinted by the notion of original sin? <laughs> to one degree or another. Yes? How many of you feel you were not? Almost equal. I'm doing this little survey as I teach because it suddenly struck me that the vision of Buddhism is so radically different from many of um, the vision of many Christian, Judeo-Christian religions. The vision in Buddhism is not of original sin, but of original blessing, that we are in our essential nature, already immaculate, pure, innocent, free, limitless. Christina last night read a description of our true nature, and several people have asked that it be read again, so I'm happy to do that. This is the vision of original blessing. Your true nature is not lost in moments of delusion, nor is it gained at the moment of enlightenment. It was never born and can never die. It shines through the whole universe, filling emptiness, one with emptiness. It is without time or space and has no passions, actions, ignorance, or knowledge. In it there are no things, no people, and no Buddhas. It contains not the smallest hairbreadth of anything that exists objectively. It depends on nothing and is attached to nothing. It is all-pervading, radiant beauty, absolute reality, self-existent and uncreated. It is a jewel beyond all price. In Buddhism, this is called our original face. But clearly this is not obvious to us. It seems quite hidden, quite elusive, quite obscure, even quite impossible. That's not me. That's not my experience. There's a Hindu story in which a baby in the womb sings, let me remember who I am. Her first cry on being born, I've forgotten already. <laughs> this forgetting is called ignorance. We have forgotten our original face. It seems that ignorance is our human condition. And because many of us were raised not with a belief in this original blessing, this original nature to come home to, but rather with original sin, 
Many of us struggle with feelings, very deep feelings of unworthiness, of never being good enough. So that even though the teachings of the Buddha should give us confidence in our inherent purity, goodness, and wisdom as our birthright, we don't believe it and we are skeptical or we may just feel hopeless that we can ever overcome all of our negative conditioning. And so it's said that we are like a poor, homeless person, wandering around who doesn't know that a precious, radiant jewel is sewn into the hem of our garment and only awaits our finding it. We have this hidden jewel within us. There is no need to look outside. The happiness we seek is found within. Ironically, so close, we cannot find it. Another analogy given of our Buddha nature, other than this one of this jewel within, is that of the sun, which is always shining, or the clear blue sky, always there, only temporarily obscured by the clouds of our mind's conditioning, our conflicted emotions, our doubts and fear, our opinions, our beliefs, our struggle, our suffering. You know the territory. These obscurations are the conditioning we've received from our parents and our teachers from a young age. They are habits of mind which have taught us to believe in fear, in separation, in a very limited sense of identity and our potential. So it's like we've been living in a trance all of our lives, the trance of believing our mental concepts to be reality itself, the trance of believing in our fear, the trance of desire, the trance of aversion, the trance of habit, the trance of believing that we are the owner of this body and this mind. And through this simple practice of mindfulness, we are beginning to decondition this trance. Every moment of wakefulness and clear seeing is a moment of deconditioning our identification with our limited beliefs and allowing the sun to shine through, allowing our own spacious sky of awareness to reveal itself. Meditation can help us to wake up, to remember our essential nature. Meditation doesn't create a new spiritual self, but rather helps us to see through the trance we are living in, sometimes described as veils, and allow the light of awareness to shine through. So Buddhism offers this vision of original blessing. And at the same time, it also invites us to see the truth of suffering. How out of harmony we are with this vision of original blessing. As Christina was saying last night, the third noble truth 
is that there is an end to suffering. Liberation is not just a nice idea, it is a living reality. And the Eightfold Path shows us that even if we have not realized it, we can actively create those conditions in our lives which maximize the possibility of surrender, of letting go, of allowing a complete absorption into the unconditioned. Some of these conditions, such as retreats, practice of mindfulness, keeping precepts in our lives, taking care with our communication and with our relationships, these all help to foster the conditions in which we create less suffering and conflict in our lives so that we can truly live with more serenity, more calmness, more spaciousness, more compassion. Someone once asked the Buddha, what is the essence of your teaching? This person was in a rush. He didn't have much time to hang around for one of the long sermons. So he said, just tell me the essence. I got to go. So the Buddha, in his kindness, said, know what you are doing. Know what you are doing. A Tibetan saint, Milarepa, said, my view is as boundless as the sky meaning that his understanding of original blessing is there. My view is as boundless as the sky, and my actions and respect for cause and effect are as fine as grains of sand. We need both. We need both the vision and the way of acting and responding in the minutest of details in our daily lives. Know what you are doing. Know, clearly comprehend what is occurring. Be present. Be present without clinging, without rejection. Now, it's quite obvious to all of us through this practice that much of the time we don't know what we're doing. It's very easy to get lost. And so I want to tell you a story. This is a story about a man who went to see a magician. He, his name was Robert, and he wanted to learn how to be a magician. So he went to this magician and he said, teach me the highest form of magic. Now this story originally occurred in Tibet, but I have transposed it to America and not only to America, but to Southern California. (laughs) Why not? So, my version of the story is that this person goes to see a shaman in the Southern California desert, and this shaman is a woman, and she lives way out in the desert. So Robert rents a car, and he drives out into the desert to see the shaman, and he comes to her house, she invites him in, and he says, I I want to learn the highest form of magic. And she says, fine, I will teach you, but first have a cup of tea. So she 
pours him a cup of tea. But just as she is pouring this cup of tea, suddenly there is this tremendous earthquake, and the house shakes and is beginning to fall into rubble all around them. Robert is terrified, so he runs out of the house. He jumps in his rent-a-car and drives off into the desert, trying to get away from this earthquake. And he drives and he drives and he drives for miles and miles, and hours and hours go by, and he's just kind of in shock, you know, from this whole experience. And Finally, he realizes he's about to run out of gas, and just as he is about to run out of gas, he comes upon this whole kind of funky gas station, and he stops, and he says, oh, I just made it here in time. Well, at the gas station, this Indian couple comes out of the, out of the house, and they, they are smiling at him and greeting him like they know him. And they say, at last you've come. We've been waiting for you for years. You've finally come. It was prophesied that you would come. You are to be the husband of our daughter. <laughs> and Robert's a little surprised that he's so expected. Here he is, never been here before. And he says, well, really, all I want is some gas. And they say, well, you will get the gas as soon as you marry our daughter. So he's in a bit of a pickle there out in the desert. So he says, all right, I'll marry your daughter. So he marries the daughter. And they say, tomorrow we'll give you some gas. So they spend the night. The next morning they arrive, the parents have died. Part of the prophecy was as soon as their daughter was married, they would die. They are now dead. He's there alone with this woman. But he sees that she's a nice woman, she's attractive. He decides to hang around. And he hangs around for a very long time. Five years go by, they have a son. And they're having a pretty good life. It's quiet, but they sit there in their motel and they serve people and the life seems fine. So one day, a very large truck pulls up to this gas station and it says on the side, TriStar Pictures. And it's a truck from Hollywood. And two Hollywood producers jump out of the truck and they look at this ramshackle gas station and they say, ah, we have been looking all over for this location for our movie. This is the perfect location. We have found the perfect spot. Can we use your gas station to, as a location for our film? So I said, well, Robert and his wife, yeah, they're a little surprised, but sure, why not? That would be interesting. So they say, okay, we'll come back the next morning. So just as they're waiting to, for this movie company to come back the next morning, Robert hears his name being called. And lo and behold, just as he hears his name, he's back in the shaman's living room, and she's finishing pouring his cup of tea. And she says, this is the highest form of magic. <laughs> now, when I was told this story, this story went on for about an hour. I shortened it considerably for you. This is the highest form of magic, that we go off 
into these movies. We create these amazing fantasies, dreams, memories, projections. You've noticed this, perhaps. <laughs> we get completely carried away. And what is going on when we're in one of these? We really believe it, don't we? It's just like a movie. It's very absorbing. It's like it's really happening. This is magic, and this is what our minds create all the time. Our minds create this at night when we're sleeping and during the day, in dreams and fantasy. Now, when we do not see this for what it is and we get lost in it, we get confused by it, this is called forgetfulness. This is called ignorance, confusion. I recently heard of a scientific study in which somebody somehow calculated, a scientist somehow calculated that on the average, we human beings think about 60,000 thoughts a day in a 24-hour period. I think that's a little low myself, but <laughs> maybe I'm wrong. 60,000 thoughts a day. And of these thoughts, 95% of them are the same thoughts we thought yesterday. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Isn't that just amazing? We listen to this all day, this endless repeating of gossip to ourselves, this endless repeating like a mantra in the mind over and over and over again, the same thoughts. This is called a trance state. Now, in this practice, we speak about seeing things as they are. And this means seeing this kind of mental activity for what it is. Not to think about our thinking, but seeing it vividly and clearly in the moment that it is occurring. When we do see in this way, when our awareness is strong enough to cut through our identification with the story, that moment is a moment of wakefulness, of just knowing what is occurring without grasping, without rejection, just clear recognition without any interpretation, without any liking or disliking. It's a moment of waking up. This is good news when you can see that clearly. This is waking up. Sometimes... Buddhists talk about ordinary mind or the untrained mind, which hears and sees and tastes and feels and thinks, always with some kind of an interpretation, always with some kind of liking or dis disliking or judging. And as an alternative, the mind which is trained is called the wisdom mind. 
This is the mind which we are cultivating here, the mind which can be attentive, which can be calm, which can be collected, which can be clear-seeing. This wisdom mind hears sound as sound, thinking as thinking, seeing as seeing, sensation as sensation, without any interpretation, just the bare attention, without elaboration. This wisdom mind knows that all these sensory experiences and all mental states are impermanent and ultimately unsatisfactory, and that to try to cling to any particular mental state means that we will suffer. When we see with this wisdom mind, we are actually breaking the chains of our own karma. We are stopping the chain of becoming. It is said that such moments of clear seeing are like writing on water. They leave no lasting imprint in our consciousness because we are not lost in them. We are not rejecting them. We are not in a struggle with them. We're just seeing them for what they are. And when we are able to cut through this kind of tendency of mind, we are undoing a major cause of our suffering. We are undoing the chains that bind us. I'll give you an example. I was working once on retreat with a woman who had a tremendous amount of fear. So at first we were, I suggested, you know, noting the fear. Sometimes that is useful. So she was noting the fear and noting the fear, and it seemed to be just getting worse. And I can understand that, because so, sometimes with fear, when you say fear, it just, you, know, you think, oh my goodness, it's worse than I thought. Fear, fear. <laughs> so that wasn't working. So finally we started investigating how she was experiencing this fear in her body. And as it turned out, she was experiencing this fear in her body as a very heavy sensation in her chest. So instead of labeling fear, I suggested she just stay with the sensation in her body. And in doing that, she lost the fear because she said, oh, I can do that. That's not hard. I know how to stay with a sensation in the chest. And somehow that helped to undo, to cut through this kind of momentum of fear that she was caught in. She was able in that moment, even though the sensation was unpleasant and intense at times, to cut through the story about it, the interpretation of it, it was not, not any longer fear, it was just an intense sensation in the body and much easier to be with than this whole construction that she had been calling fear. And in this way she came to know fear in its actuality and it lost much of its power over her. Now the Buddha discovered this same thing on the night of his awakening. You know the story of his awakening? He was sitting under the Bodhi tree 
And it is said that all the distractions personified by the god Mara came to test him. He had made a strong resolve not to get up until he had awakened. And of course, it does seem that when we make a strong resolve, we're often tested. So the god Mara heard the Buddha make this resolve and he thought, aha, I'll go to test the Buddha. So he came with his armies of distraction. And what were they? Anger, fear, lust, pride, jealousy, doubt, sleepiness, restlessness, the whole catastrophe. All of these arose and he faced each one and he said as fear arose, as anger arose, as lust arose, to each he said, I know you. Just that simple, I know you. He didn't sit there and say, oh no, here's this fear again, I'll never get over my fear, and clearly I'm just, it's hopeless, I'm helpless. No, I know you. He didn't say, oh, this is a big waste of time, I've got better things to do, I can't deal with all this, it's too much. No, he sat there and said, I know you. He didn't try special mantras, he didn't try special visualizations, he didn't do special yogic breathing. He just said, I know you fear, I know you anger, you can't fool me. Now we know how convincing these states are, these kind of intense mental states. They have, as I've said before, almost an hallucinatory quality to them. And the story they tell can be very convincing. So we need to be very vigilant and not be seduced by strong mental states, by the voice of anger, the voice of fear, the voice of craving. The Buddha was able to be vigilant and just face them and say, I know you. He also knew that these mind states are impermanent and not under our control. He did not cling to them, he did not reject them, but with spaciousness, clear seeing, and acceptance, he allowed them to be, to arise and to pass. And just as the Buddha did, we can know all that arises. We can meet it to see its actuality. And in doing so, we are also cultivating in that meeting an inner environment of calmness, clarity, and spaciousness so that eventually we too can find that, difficult, that difficulties can arise in a mind which is basically peaceful. Difficulties can arise in a mind which is peaceful, a mind which can accommodate the arising and passing of all of samsara without being disturbed or caught by any of it. And eventually we can come to be identified more with spaciousness, wakefulness, and peace than with any mind state or experience which is passing through.
Now, it's not that we need to get rid of thinking. I want to get back to this thinking mind a little bit. It's not that we need to get rid of thinking. There's a Tibetan saying, it's a tall order to ask for tea without leaves or for meat without bones. It's a tall order to ask for a mind without thoughts. To have a mind means to have thoughts. And it's not that we are trying to get rid of thinking. In many ways, thinking is very useful. I mean, how did you get to IMS? You had to have a few thoughts to get here. Thinking is very useful for sharing information, for communication, for finding our way, for inspiring inquiry into life, for creating connection with people. So it's not about getting rid of thinking. But let's look at this mind for a minute. Just as our bodies live in a very kind of uh, limited range of conditions, you know, our bodies need certain things in order to stay alive. They need oxygen. They need water. They need sunlight. These are some of the basics. We need gravity to stay on the planet. We're living in a somewhat limited range of, of conditions here. And just as our bodies need certain conditions in order to stay alive, so our minds also are very easily influenced or distorted or, well, influenced by our body's health and chemistry. You know, a very mundane example, but a true one that they have found that with people who are very depressed, exercise and running really helps to elevate the mood of the mind, the activity of the body. In the same way that slowing the body and calming the body helps to slow and calm the mind. A lot of what goes on here is when we begin to physically slow down, our thoughts too begin to slow down. We become more relaxed. Our ability to think actually is very easily influenced by the condition of the body. For example, the temperature of the body. If our temperature goes up to 104, we're quite likely to be experiencing some distortions of thought and imagery called hallucination. Our minds are very influenced by the deterioration of our body, by stroke, by diseases of the brain, by Alzheimer's. Our thinking mind gets quite distorted. Certainly getting older, what happens? Our memory seems to disappear for obvious facts. Our minds are not that reliable. You know the Nasruddin story. Nasruddin is a Sufi saint fool who one day he went to see a psychiatrist and he said, my problem is that I can't remember anything. I can relate to this. Getting older, I can certainly relate to this. My problem is I can't remember anything. And the psychiatrist says to him, how long has this been going on? <laughs> And Nasruddin says, how long has what been going on? 
Our minds are not reliable. And under stress, under stress, emotional stress, physical stress, the mind's ability to think clearly is, is affected. Now, we have a lot of people in our country, running our country, who are working under a great deal of stress. <laughs> and when the Soviet Union was still the Soviet Union, there was a lot of thinking going on about planning for nuclear war. And some years ago, I cut out a, an article that was in the San Francisco newspaper. The headline is, Nuclear War Traffic Problems. <laughs> It's here, right here. Nuclear war traffic problems. And the article begins by saying, if a nuclear attack on the United States ever appears imminent, the Plattsburgh, New York Police Department will assign two patrolmen to direct traffic <laughs> at the corner of Broad and Cordelia. Now, this was part of an evacuation program which was part of the National Civil Defense Program called Crisis Relocation Planning, <laughs> under which residents of high-risk areas will move to low-risk host areas. Before nuclear attack has occurred, they imagine this would happen, which means that they are assuming that we would have a couple of weeks of warning, you know, to know when a nuclear attack is coming, everybody could get organized and so. <laughs> For example, the evacuation plan for Tucson, Arizona specifies, this was written down, <laughs> specifies that 200 evacuees will set up house at Kino Cleaners <laughs> in the outlying town of Nogales and will eat at the McDonald's. <laughs> If war breaks out and bombs fall, if war breaks out and bombs fall, they will be joined at Kino Cleaners by, three, <laughs> by 342 of the 530 people living at Elks Lodge, number 1397. <laughs> because Kino Cleaners can be more easily converted into a fallout shelter by packing dirt around it than can the Elks Lodge. The present owners of buildings that will house relocatees have not been troubled with prior notification of any of these plans. A couple of years after the Nogales plan was written, a reporter tried to telephone Kino Cleaners. It took several phone calls to reach the right building because Kino Cleaners had been converted to a true value hardware store. <laughs> But owner Ed Baez was finally contacted and told of the pl plan to house 200 refugees in his store. <laughs> he said, oh. <laughs> oh, that's news to me. He was then told 542 more people will live in his store after a nuclear attack. Jiminy Christmas, he <laughs> 
I guess they could live here. It wouldn't be too comfortable. They'd have to stand in line to use the Johns. There's only two. This is the planning mind in charge out there. In Denver, um, they have also a crisis relocation pamphlet, which says that when crisis relocation has been ordered, do not panic. Box lunch meals will be available. <laughs> you know, nu nuclear war is coming, and the first thing you think is, where is my box lunch? <laughs> Well, I could go on. It's really quite amazing what these planners have in mind. <laughs> A less charged type of stress, perhaps, are car accidents. Here are a few verbatim reports of accidents submitted to an insurance company. Verbatim reports. Coming home, I drove into the wrong driveway and collided with a tree I don't have. <laughs> the telephone pole was approaching. I was attempting to swerve out of its way when it struck my car. A, pedest a pedestrian hit me and went under my car. <laughs> I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over the embankment. <laughs> An invisible car came out of nowhere, <laughs> struck my car, and vanished. <laughs> you know what I think is interesting about all of these is this kind of sense that, I mean, these are different people, but there's all this sense of these kind of being these victims of these inanimate objects, you know. These inanimate objects are suddenly attacking. So this kind of thinking that goes on in the world is not entirely reliable. Yogi Berra put it this way, what gets us into trouble is not what we don't know, it's what we know for sure that just ain't so. What we know for sure that just ain't so. This is what actually clouds our mind, what obstructs our view of reality. And nowhere is this more true than in our thoughts about who we are, in our limited beliefs and definitions of self. You may have noticed how many times have you, as you sat here, you know, arrived at some conclusion about yourself. 
you have a bad sitting and this suddenly you notice you're having some depressed thoughts about yourself or you have a pretty good sitting and suddenly you notice you're having some more kind of cheerful thoughts about yourself and who you are part of the magic of our minds is that sometimes we appear to ourselves as gods and sometimes we appear to ourselves as devils Sometimes we believe one thought about ourselves and sometimes we believe another. Which are we to believe? How can we know for sure which is true? We may think, well, maybe others can tell me. And so we look for some sign of what others think about us, some proof that will shore up one idea or another that we have about ourselves. We really want to know who we are. But when we look to our thoughts to tell us, we are really looking in the wrong place. I have a friend in California who was in a bicycle accident. He was hit and fell off his bicycle, and he had a concussion. And he woke up in the hospital and he had no idea who he was. He had no idea who he was. He had complete amnesia for about a week. His memory came back slowly. But for about a week, he was living in this state of having no idea who he was. But he had friends visit, and his mother visited. He had no idea who they were either. But he could see they were nice people, they were friendly to him, they seemed to know him, even though he didn't know them. Now, he had done a lot of practice, so he wasn't that alarmed. He said it was actually very peaceful. It was very peaceful. He had no idea what was going on, but he was very peaceful. Sometimes it's not our thoughts that we're looking to for some sort of self-definition, but rather to kind of the condition of our body. I heard a story recently from a nurse who was taking care of a man with AIDS. And he was dying. The disease was active. And he was one day feeling a lot of sadness, and he was sharing this with the nurse. He said he was particularly sad because an old friend of his had, for a while, been visiting him very regularly and helping him with small chores and just being a companion for him. And then she stopped coming, and he finally talked to her on the phone, and he asked her why. And she said, I'm sorry, it's just that you've changed so much. And in telling this story to the nurse, he, he looked at her and he said, with tears in his eyes, he said, I haven't changed. His friend was defining him by the appearance of his body. He was wasting away. In her eyes, he was no longer himself. 
while he was resting in a deeper sense of his identity, I haven't changed. Sometimes this sense of identity in this deep sense of not changing is expressed in some spiritual traditions by the words, I am. Not, you know, I am a woman, I am a housewife, I am a teacher, I am a student, I am a yogi, I'm a man, I'm a carpenter. None of those descriptions not I have, not I do, not I know, just I am. Say that to yourself. Sense this in yourself, this place of just I am. If you look closely, you can see that this sense of I am is present with you no matter what the content of your experience. But we usually define ourselves more by the content. You know, I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm cheerful, I'm depressed, I'm feeling good, I'm not feeling all that. Rather than just resting in this awareness of I am, our I amness, you could say, our presence. One way to describe mindfulness practice is that it is a shift of attention from the content of our experience to the process. Just thinking, just breathing, just hearing, and finally just to the presence of awareness itself. Just being aware. Just being I am. When we bring our attention to the kind of impermanent and transparent nature of all of our thinking, this can open us to the presence of awareness itself. I've told this story before. I'll tell it again. There was a man who taught here some years ago by the name of Munindra. He was an Indian teacher of Joseph's. And he said one night in a talk, something I have found very useful. The thought of your mother is not your mother. The thought of your mother is not your mother. Now he didn't say, some thoughts of your mother are not your mother, and then there are these other thoughts of your mother that are your mother. He said, no thought of your mother is your mother. No thought can describe her in her suchness or in her she isness. Do you see that? No thought can capture her totality. Now, in the same way, I offer this to you if you want to try something. Say to yourself, The thought of myself is not myself. The thought of myself is not myself. What if you went through the rest of this evening without believing any of the thoughts about yourself? What would that be like? 
Does anybody have an immediate response? What does that do to you? Anybody? Scary? Scary? That there might not be anything to identify with. Look a little closer. What's there when you let go of the thinking? Huh? Absolute freedom. Is there a problem with that? <laughs> well, I think. Huh? Well, I think, yes. We can always think. You were going to say something? Um, immediately, I thought of your, your friend that um, had the um, bicycle accident. Yes, right. Which brings me actually to the Avatamsaka Sutra. Having no view of self, one is always peaceful. <laughs> Having no view of self, one is always peaceful. This is the heart of spiritual understanding. Mo- moving from identification with views of self to no view of self. Now the Buddha, when he, on the, after he was enlightened, And after he got up and was walking down the road, some villagers saw him and they said, who are you? I guess they were struck by his appearance. He was probably quite radiant. And they said, are you a god? Are you a deva? Are you a man? Who are you? Where are you from? What's going on? He didn't say, well... I'm a great yogi, or I'm enlightened, or I'm an arhat, or none of that. He said, I'm awake. That's it. So simple. I'm awake. That's all. Having no view of self, one is always peaceful. So challenge this thinking mind. Challenge these views of self, these conclusions of self, about self. Challenge them. See in your own experience what you discovered. There's more to be discovered than just fear. So that's all I have to say tonight. Thank you for your attention. Maybe we could sit together. This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Insight Meditation Society on July 27, 1993. It is an offering of the... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.